0: person of younger age, but you decided today be a great day to volunteer. I don't want to hear about this topic. And so you can head out the back door there, turn to your left, that is zero through fifth grade, is our Bridge Kids ministry, our middle school ministry. If you head out the door and head to your right, that will take you down the hall to our SYU, Southbridge Youth United uh, middle school ministry, and they will be meeting during this service. I'm going to pray in a moment for those of you who are thinking, I want to, but I feel like he's watching me. <laughs> I will pray in a moment. I will close my eyes and bow my head, and if you want to head out of here, you can feel free to do that. Because of the nature of the topic we're talking about today, there'll be some Mature content, but I believe God's got a word for each one of us. And uh, many people feel like it's uncomfortable to talk about sex in church. It should be the last place that it's uncomfortable to talk about because God's the one who designed it. And God has a good plan for it. And today what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at a passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. The first half of the passage is gonna talk about the abuses uh, of sex, and the second half of the passage is gonna talk about the blessings of sex. And so we're gonna look at both this morning as we talk about God's plan. But I'm gonna pray for us. That's your cue for those of you who need to make an exit. I want to pray for us that God would speak to each one of our hearts. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we get to come into your presence. Thank you, God, that you have a word for us in this topic that can be incredibly sensitive and uh, can bring up some memories for some folks or some of their worst regrets and their greatest pain. And for other folks they are so excited about what's going to be said that they might miss what you really want to say to them. And God, I pray you'd open our hearts to all of that. That you would show us your grace and your forgiveness and the power of your redemption for those of us who need to hear that. Words of encouragement for those who need to hear that. Words of confrontation for those who need to hear that. God, I'm going to speak words, and I'm going to say one thing, and you're going to have hundreds of conversations with people. And God, we just invite you in to do that, and we open our hearts to you. We ask you to speak through your word, which we know is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And I pray you'd pierce our hearts, you'd encourage our spirits, you let the gospel flow through everything that's said today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I bought a vacuum cleaner. Yes, this talk is about sex. And some of you are wondering, how is he tying a vacuum cleaner into sex? Stay with me here for a moment. A few weeks ago, I bought a vacuum cleaner, and I was actually excited about this purchase, which just sounds like a weird thing. But I got a great deal on this vacuum cleaner at Walmart, but I didn't take it out of the box right away. And so it's in a box, which, by the way, should tell you that it needs to be assembled. I didn't think of that. But I opened the box up, and I realized, oh, man, this thing's in a bunch of different pieces. Which you know what that means? That means there's instructions. <laughs> which I have no interest in reading any of the instructions. I've seen vacuum cleaners. I feel like I know how vacuum cleaners work. There aren't that many parts. How hard could it be? And so I take the vacuum cleaner out and I stick the handle thing on the back and the thing that's supposed to cover, you know, catch the dust or whatever's on there. And I'm like, I think that's on right. There's some accessories. I plug it in. I start vacuuming. I'm not kidding. I vacuum for about 30 seconds. I did run over a popcorn kernel. But after about 30 seconds, it starts sparking, smoking, and then it just stops working. It's all done today we're talking about sex. And for many of us, sex is a lot like that experience I had with the vacuum cleaner. And I don't just mean there's some sparks, some smoke, and 30 seconds later, it's over with. (laughs) For some of you, that is what it's like. But what I mean is, that a lot of us, we, we feel like we know how this is supposed to happen. I mean, we've seen we've seen I mean, what's on the movies, whatever we got our examples from. We don't, we don't have to read the instructions. We don't have to go to the creator who designed this thing. And some of us don't even realize that God's even spoken about this. He don't even know there are instructions. I remember the first time I gave a sex talk at Southbridge about 10 years ago. A guy came afterwards and said, I didn't know the Bible even talked about sex. <laughs> oh, it's in like almost every book, by the way. And God has a plan for it. Some people think he's just against it. He's not against it. He designed it. He created it. He created it actually for pleasure. And we're going to talk about his good plan for it today. I've had other people say to me before in the past, one one church at a church of leaders at this church said this, not our church, but some church leaders said to me one time, God doesn't care who's in your bed. He just cares about what's in your heart. And I thought that would make a terrible bumper sticker (laughs) because it sounds good. It's just not true. And so I want to ask you, as we think about, you know, my vacuum illustration, I'm ignoring the instructions, and you got, the, the, I think I know what it looks like, I think I know how it's supposed to work, but it blew, the, the whole thing got messed up, and the deal, where did you first learn about sex? How do you know what you know about sex? For some of you, it's going to be from experience, and for some of you, maybe it was a, a friend, maybe some of you, your parents had the talk with you, isn't the talk like the weirdest moment, whether you're a parent or whether you're the kid? It's because as a kid it's like the thing you're most curious about in the world is the last person you want to hear from right and as a parent you know it's like i had if i don't tell them then somebody you know where they're going to hear this stuff and so you have the talk. i remember the talk for me my parents were not christians i didn't grow up in a christian home the talk for me was that i got picked up from sports practice one time in middle school and there was a box of condoms sitting on the seat and i was told don't get anyone pregnant that was my talk so then i learned from friends and from all kinds of different other did you learn from the movies i hope not that's a terrible spot where did you learn? Have you even considered going to the instructions and going to where we get the one who designed it, who says how it's supposed to be used? See, what many church people end up thinking about sex is that it's like it's separate from everything else. And so you know God's got a good plan for your life. God loves you. He's got a plan for you, right? Like, have you heard that statement before? But do you know that verses like Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 apply to your sex life? that you're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for you to do before the beginning of time. God had a plan for your life, and that includes your sex life. And so I realize everyone here, every single individual here has a different story. For some of you, the topic of sex is the most exciting thing we could possibly talk about at church and you're hoping I can tell you how to have the best sex ever. <laughs> and some of you, it's the greatest pain you've ever experienced in your life. And just even the mention of it reminds you of some bad experiences. And for some of you, you're married, but it's the greatest tension you have in all of your marriage. Some of you are married, you haven't had sex in years. That's true. That that is the case for some folks. For some people, you waited, and you kept yourself pure, and you were all excited about what it was gonna be like, and then you were like, I waited for that? (laughs) It wasn't what you expected. Some of you are single, and you wonder if you're ever gonna be able to have sex. Some of you are single again, maybe you're divorced or widowed, and you wonder if you'll ever do it again. Let me tell you something, God's got a plan for every one of you when it comes to your sex life. And so the question I want us all to ask ourselves today is the same question. What is God's plan for my sex life? And I want, you, and some of you, are not used to taking notes. Maybe you jot that down and at the end. Maybe even as you're applying the message, you jot some notes down of things that God speaks to your heart. But what is God's plan for your sex life? Whether you're about to be married, whether you've never been married, whether you've been married for 50 years, whatever the situation is, what is God's got a specific plan for your sex life. What is it? And we're going to look at a passage of scripture I mentioned to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 today. And so if you have your Bible, please join me there in 1 Corinthians to the New Testament, towards the back of the New Testament. And as you're turning there, just what you need to know about Corinth is they're a lot like us, is the summary. They love sports in Corinth. Uh, the Corinthian games were second only. The Olympic games, we've got Duke, UNC, NC State, ECU, Meredith. I mean, come on, we got sports got the hurricanes and the Panthers and there's basketball and football and hockey, all baseball during Bulls, right here. We love sports. In fact, some people aren't here today because they're playing lacrosse or soccer or swimming. There's all kinds of stuff that we can be, we can literally worship sports. And many people do. And they, they did then too. They're incredibly wealthy in Corinth. In fact, if you wanted to make money fast, Corinth is a great place to go to because they had all these trade routes that went through there. And so a lot of people came and left, very transient area. You you have a lot of friends that move away and come here and jobs. And we live in one of the wealthiest places in the world and one of the wealthiest times in all of human history. And Corinth, they knew the temptations of that. But here's what I want you to get that's so similar to us. Their society was a sex-saturated society. Sex was everywhere. In fact, the city itself sat underneath a temple of Aphrodite, where the way that you worshipped was oftentimes using temple prostitutes. And so there were hundreds, sometimes even a thousand temple prostitutes that would spread around the city, and people would buy their bodies and actually call it worship. And you think about how we worship sex as a society, with pornography, human trafficking, all the stuff that's going on. But forget all that, just even in the regular everyday advertisements. It doesn't matter what product you're selling, sex sells. Everybody's heard that before because sex will make someone look a second time, a third time, a fourth time at a product. I don't care if you're selling baking soda or vacuum cleaners. People use sex to try and sell these products. It's because we worship sex. Let me tell you why we worship sex. It's because we long for God. We want to experience the transcendent, and we believe this lie that the only place it could be found is between the sheets. And so it's to people like that that Paul's writing and he's writing to people who have a past. He's got a background. And if you read, we'll go back to verses 9 through 11 in chapter 6 in just a moment. But let's start reading in verse 12. In verse 12, what we see are some slogans that people were using to justify their sinful, their sexually sinful behavior. And so in verses 12 through 20 in chapter 6, we see the abuses of sex. And we get one command. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. And it's in quotation marks in your Bible. He's quoting one of their slogans. But then he adds, but not all things are helpful. Every... Every deception has some truth to it, and there's some truth to this. All things are lawful for me, but then he says again some more truth, but I'll not be dominated by anything. And then another one of their slogans, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Wait, I thought you were talking about food. No, he wasn't. But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? That's unthinkable. Never, he says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, and he quotes part of Genesis 2.24, I told you in week one, anything biblical that's said about marriage comes from Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And he quotes this last part, and the two will become one flesh. Does that mean if you have sex outside of marriage, you're married to that person? No, because marriage is more than sex. But sex is meant to be a picture of the union that God does at the time of marriage. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Here's your command, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you're bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. First, what he does here in this passage, is he points out the abuses of sex that are taking place with these Corinthians. See, God's got a great plan for sex, and it's a plan that happens in a context, and the context is a marriage relationship with one man and one woman. And that goes back to Genesis 2:24. For this reason, a man will leave his father, mother, be united to his wife. So it's one man, it's one woman, united together. The, the consummation, the sexual union is a symbol of what God does at that marriage when there's a covenant between these two before God. The two will become one, incredibly intimate. And then in a glorious verse they were naked and they felt no shame, verse 25. There's incredible freedom in that. That's the context for marriage. Everything outside of that context, the Bible calls sexual immorality. So, what is sexual immorality? You, know, you remember I used to get that question when I was a youth pastor Does, does this count? Does that count? And there'll be all these exact. Everything that's outside the context I just mentioned to you, the answer is yes, that is sexual immorality. But we're engaged and we plan on being. Are you married? Then it's sexual immorality. But, but what about if I've been married before, so I know what this is like and I've got experience? So, you, is it in the context? Because everything outside the context is sexual immorality. And the command here is this about the abuses flee, get away from it. So when I was a youth pastor, I used to get this question too How far is too far? And so what they want to know is where's the, there's like this imaginary line. And they want to know where's the line, because I want to get like to the line. Right? Like, I want to get as close to the line as I can. Here's what Paul's saying. If you can see the line, run. Flee. Flee from the line. Get away from, there's no line, but anything outside the guardrails that God set up, his context, is to flee. Now, most of us know that. Most of us know that, and that's why a lot of people think that God's against sex. It's all throughout the Bible. It's in the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. Jesus talks about if if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. So think about whether Jesus cares about it. Now, Jesus cares about what is in your heart, and it directly impacts who's in your bed. In fact, he cares about what's in your mind about who's in your bed. And so we see it all through the Bible. Resist, don't run, flee. We see Joseph in the Old Testament, Potiphar's wife, he doesn't go, hey, no temptation will seize me, but what's common to me, I got this, Potiphar's wife. He's like, no, I'm out of here. And Paul's saying, that's what you do. You flee, but here's what I love about this passage. It doesn't just say to flee. It tells us Why? Flee sexual morality because sexual sin is serious. And that's what this passage lays out for us. It tells us at least three ways that it's so serious. Flee sexual immorality because sexual sin is so serious. And so this is a great passage for those of you who maybe were a kid like me. Like if your parents told you, don't touch the stove. I'm thinking, well, I really want to know why I'm not supposed to touch the stove. Like I, I don't, Now I want to touch the stove. Don't play on 540. What's out there on 540 that I'm not? I need to see it. And so some of you, you get told, hey, don't, 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 no, not sexual immorality. And you're going, why not? Something must be good about that. And so what, what Paul's pointing out here is that God's no is actually a loving no. He's saying it because he cares about you. He's got a good plan, and when you step outside that plan, it's dangerous, and it lends itself to disaster. And so what he does in this passage of Scripture is he tells us not just, no, because I said so. Now, that would be fine for God to say, by the way. Because he's God, and by the way, he's smarter than all of us. And when we sin sexually, we're actually saying we think we're smarter than him. God, you're holding out on me. You got, I, you're, I know what you say, but I know better. And my, it doesn't apply to me because, and you come up with some scenario or some situation. And what he does here is he actually lays out, here's, not only is it no, that would be enough. But no, and here's why. And the first one that we see is because sexual sin is so deceptive. And he says in verse 12, All things, you're saying, all things are lawful for me. There's partial truth in that because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. We're not under the law. There's some truth in that. But he says here, not everything's beneficial. You know the summary of the law, right? Love God, love other people. And most people in our standards today, the sexual standard is this kind of of our culture, not biblical, just of our culture. If it's two consenting adults, it's fine. As long as no one gets hurt. And here's the reality, what scripture says. Oh, people get hurt. You might not realize it in the moment. But you're doing damage to yourself and to others. Is it loving towards God? Is it loving? No, you're using other. No, no. And what Paul's saying is, no, no, there's deception here. And you don't see it, Corinthians. You say this, all things are lawful for me. You say this, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food. And so what they were saying was this. If I got an appetite to eat, then I eat. So if I got an appetite for sex, then I have sex. Now, you got to remember who Paul's talking to here, and that's where you go back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and read verses 9 through 11. So, we might have it on the screen, but if not, if you've got your Bible, just glance up a little bit. It's so the immediate context for this passage, and you see who Paul's talking to. This is just to believers. But these are believers who have a sexual background. Look at what he says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, who's righteous? The Bible says no one is righteous, not one. Only people have been forgiven. Only people who trusted in Christ, who's the only one that perfectly obeyed and took the wrath of God on the cross so that we could receive his righteousness. But he lists out what unrighteousness looks like. He says, do not be deceived, because it's deceptive, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. See people doing this stuff? They're not inheriting the kingdom of God. In verse 11 though, and such were, you might underline that word. It's my favorite word in this whole passage. Such were some of you. And what he's saying is God transformed your lives. And God's changed lives. He's changed lives here, amen? amen. He's changed some of your lives. and such, you, you fit in some of this list, some of you. And such were some of you. But he says this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Amen? You've been changed. You've been transformed. So that was your past. He can change your past. You've been washed. That means you're clean. You've been sanctified. That means you've been set apart. You've been justified. You are right with God. He sees you as righteous, even though you weren't righteous. He transformed you. And so what's happened is some of these people have been deceived by their culture, and they've been transformed, but they're slipping back into their old way of life. And what Paul's saying here in verses 12, no, no, no. You believe in these things that people are using, that have partial truth in them to justify your sin. Sin, sexual sin, is so deceptive, because it promises something it does not deliver. It promises intimacy, you know what it delivers? Shame. It, it, It promises ecstasy, you know what it delivers? Isolation. It will cost you. There are consequences. If, if you want to see a spot where they're all laid out, go to uh, Proverbs chapter 5. You talk about the talk. Maybe your parents never had the talk with you and it was like a biblical-based talk. Go to Proverbs chapter 5 where there's a father speaking to his son and he's giving him wisdom and he's giving him the talk about sex. And he says, he talks about the adulterous woman. It's a personification of the foolishness of sexual sin. And what he says is, not about her bodily, like how tempting she is because she's so seductive, but because of what she promises and Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 it says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. They promise something good. Her speech is smoother than oil. It looks so tempting. But in the end, there's always an end. We often don't think about it, but there's an end. Maybe not immediately, it might be years, but in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two edged sword. She will cut. There will be consequences. Classic story is David and David and Bathsheba. And we oftentimes talk about it as a great story of forgiveness and repentance and restoration. But have you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12? In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, what happens is King David, he's already got wives. This woman's already married. Her name's Bathsheba. He sees her. He's tempted by her. He brings her. They have sex. Long story short, he kills her husband to cover it up. He thinks he's gotten away with it. Months later, this guy comes to him. His name's Nathaniel. Nathaniel loves David. See, a lot of times we think it's a messed up definition of love. We think that love is just let people do what they want to do. Nathaniel loves David so much that he's not going to let him stay in his sin. So he confronts his sin. It's very loving to confront sin. And he confronts his sexual sin. David doesn't realize it at first. And Nathanael says, you're the man. You're the one that you're so upset about. You're the one who's sinned and done this. And then David repents. And so we always talk about that. And we go to the Psalms. We talk about how he's restored. Have you read the rest of 2 Samuel chapter 12? Because what happens there is that we get the consequences for sexual sin. Hey, that baby that she's pregnant with, David, the baby's going to die. And it's because of your sin. It's not happenstance. And not only that, the evil's going to rise up against you in your own home. Your kids are going to rebel against you. In fact, the sword's never going to leave your house. And you start reading David's life. He is forgiven. He is a man after God's own heart. God still uses him. His family is a disaster. it's part of the consequences of his sexual sin. Sexual sin always comes with consequences. Some of you know that because you're living it. Some of you have the scars of it. Some of you, it's why when we get to the second half and we talk about the marriage bed, it's gonna be like, you bring that stuff in and you've got those memories and so you feel guilty and there is shame and there's not the freedom that there should be, but there's hope for that. Sexual sin is deceptive. Sexual sin is not only deceptive, but the second thing we see in this passage is that sexual sin is different than any other sin. Some people will say to you, it's a, it's a lie, it's, a, it's a, like one of these slogans in this passage. All sin is the same, all sin is not the same. Sexual sin is different. It's not the worst sin. The worst sin, according to the Bible, is to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because that leads to eternal damnation. But sexual sin is not the same as stealing or lying. Sexual sin is different. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, oh, so this sin is different. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So this sin's different. What's different about it? Well, you're sinning against yourself. And some of you would say, well, then I'm good because I'm not hurting anybody but me. And so it's my body and I get to choose. But let me remind you that you can't take Bible verses out of context. And so read this in the context. I'm gonna go back to verse 15 and read through verse 20. And it's gonna blow that argument out of the water because you don't belong to you. You've been bought at a price. And look at what else it says. Your body's not your own. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then look at this ridiculous and highly offensive to many illustration that Paul uses in the Bible. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Because you're bringing Jesus into this sin. That's one of the reasons why it's so different. Never. Or do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Would you do that with Jesus? It's unthinkable. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then our warning, flee from sexual immorality. Run, get away from the line. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, that God lives within you, whom you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You are bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. And so it's like this. For those of you who are involved in sexual sin, I'm speaking specifically to you right now. Imagine you lived back during Bible times. During Bible times, there was this place that people would go uh, to worship. And so it wasn't just like you worship anywhere and the Holy Spirit's in you. Uh, in Bible times, you'd go to the temple because that's where God's presence was at. But within the temple, depending on who you were, depended on how close you could get. And so men could go closer than women and Jews could go closer than Gentiles, and priests could go closer than than lay Jews could go. And then there was one priest, the high priest, who could go into the the closest spot where it was believed that God's presence was actually at the Holy of Holies. But he could only go there one day. It was on the holiest day, the Day of Atonement. And so the high priest, the holiest guy, could go into the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, on one day. Every other day, that place is, no one's in there. The only way that he could go in is if he sanctified himself. He had to do special sacrifices in order to be able to go into God's presence, his holiness, where his holiness dwells, and sin can't be in his his presence because he's holy. He dwells in unapproachable light, it will wipe it out. So imagine you live during Bible times and you want to commit sexual immorality. What more private place to go than the Holy of Holies? No one's in there. Who's going to know? Would you do that? What Paul's saying in this passage today is worse than that. Because he's saying, you're the holy of holies. God's spirit dwell indwells dwells you. You belong to Christ. So all the sexual sin you're involved in, you actually bring Jesus into that. And see, a lot of us don't like that because we think, no, no, no. We separate sex from everything else. We certainly separate it from church. And here's the reality. Jesus, if Jesus is in you, it should be unthinkable to be involved in sexual sin. But here's how it becomes thinkable. Not only is sexual sin deceptive, not only is it different, but it's spiritually destructive. Because what happens is our hearts become hardened. It's like a callus When you're lifting weights or you're doing work, they become on your hand for a reason so that you lose feeling. And that's what happens with many people's hearts. And so Paul says here, he's using this illustration, a food is meant for the stomach, a stomach for the food. And so what the people were saying then was we have an appetite for something then you feed the appetite. And later in the book of Philippians, he talks about people who live by their appetites. In Proverbs chapter, or in Philippians chapter three, and verse 18, he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross. Why? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They do whatever they want. And they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And so they think it's not hurting anyone and they're driven by it. They're actually enemies of the cross and they don't even realize it. That's what sexual sin does to us. But here's here's the reality. God can forgive sexual sin. That people can be restored. Because God is faithful and God is just. Not because not once you clean up your act, if you'll confess your sin, to confess, I mean see what it is, see what it is between you and God. It separates you from Him. It's like you've brought it into this holy relationship and you've separated the holy relationship. And the longer you think that it's okay, the harder your heart becomes, and the less likely you are to repent. But if you repent and you turn to him, he's faithful, he's just, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And those are words of hope. Because you can be renewed, you can be changed. I'm not saying there aren't consequences. I'm not saying it's not deceptive. But I'm saying that God can transform because he still changes lives. But when you see sexual sin, flee because it's serious. But God's plan for sex is glorious. See, God's got a great plan for sex. And when it's experienced within the guardrails of God's plan, within the context that he has for it, it's an incredible plan that experiences incredible freedom. There is great freedom within the guardrails of God's plan for your sex life. But you've got to operate within those guardrails. And so we turn to chapter 7 now and see the blessings of sex. In chapter 7, what's happening is that Paul's starting to answer some questions. The Corinthians had written him some questions. And apparently one of the questions was, is it better just to be single? And Paul talks about singleness and talks about the blessing and the giftedness even for some folks of singleness later in chapter 7. And he acknowledges at the beginning of chapter 7 that sexual temptation is real for single people. Paul himself is single. But apparently some people were asking, and remember their context, some of them are adulterers, some of them are homosexuals, some of them were ex-prostitutes. They've got baggage. And so what is our natural human tendency? It's to swing the pendulum, right? Like if you did one thing and then you come to Jesus, then it's going to swing the pendulum. All sex must be bad. And so they wrote the question and asked, should we be celibate within our marriage? And Paul says, no way. In fact, you should do this stuff frequently, is what he says to them, if you're married. Look what he says and the freedom that he mentions here in this passage. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's saying it's good to be single, to be celibate. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So one of the reasons for marriage, it's not the ultimate reason, we've talked about that in the previous messages, Ephesians chapter 5, ultimate reasons to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. But one of the reasons, you want to know how to flee? Here's a practical application. Get married. So you're engaged, you can't keep your hands off each other? Get married. Seems. Because of the temptation, you should have your own wife. There's the context, own husband. In verses 3 through 5, he gives some more instructions. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. So the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, but he makes a concession here. He's saying here in verse 5, this should be a regular a frequent occurrence Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That one of the guards against sexual immorality is the marriage bed. And then within the marriage bed, there's incredible freedom. Remember that passage of scripture in Genesis 2? For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, the two will become one. What about the next verse? And they were naked and they felt no shame. Have you ever read the passage in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4? You can take it down in your notes if you want to. It says that marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed should be undefiled. There's great freedom. Because it's it's what we said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, with your own husband and your own wife, within those guardrails. Within those guardrails, there is incredible freedom. But here's the reality. You go back to that Genesis passage and you go, yeah, but that was before sin. And so... There was no sin in that deal. There was no shame. There was no fear. Maybe they had perfect bodies. I don't know. I do know this. I do know that Adam had never seen another woman. And men, that's how it's designed to be actually on your wedding night. That's the first woman you see that way. How almost impossible in our culture. But do you realize that God's plan for this is that your wife should be your standard of beauty, men? So that when you see your wife, that's what you want. Not, hey, I'm married to a brunette and I got a thing for redheads. No, if you're married to a brunette, you've got to think for one brunette. <laughs> and if she's tall, you like tall. And if she's not tall, you don't like tall. <laughs> okay? And, and, and whatever the diamond, whatever the, she's got freckles, you love freckles, those freckles. And if she doesn't, you, you don't like freckles at all. She is your standard of beauty. That's God's plan. See, how, do you, how can you have that freedom? How can you have no shame? Let me tell you, there's two ways. One, be perfect. Okay, no one did that. Next option The next option is the marriage covenant. Because in the marriage covenant, there's great safety and security and sensuality. Because now there's freedom. The sensuality flows out of the freedom when there's safety and when there's security. How do we have safety and security? Well, we know that no one's leaving. We're here. We're committed to this. When we live out the stuff that we talked about from Ephesians chapter five, when we talked about Christ's love for the church, God's plan for your sexual life is that your sexual life would put on display Christ's love for the church. Some of you, that seems creepy. Because what we've done is we've separated our spirituality from our sexuality and we don't realize that all sex is spiritual. Our sexual sin is spiritual. We're bringing Jesus into this deal and Jesus is in this deal when when it's not sin too. And there should be incredible freedom because God wants you to enjoy it. But I know some of you will be stuck there so before I go into the rest of the teaching let me just remind you the rest of the Bible talks about sex too. And there are some spots that are incredibly sensual. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I used to tell the kids, some of your parents won't let you watch R-rated movies, but they'll let you read the Bible. Are you kidding? (laughs) Have you read what's in here? Proverbs chapter 5, that same passage I talked about earlier, when the father starts talking to the son about the right kind of sex in the context, he's saying, enjoy it. Enjoy it with your wife. He uses poetic language. Let me read some of it to you. In Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 20 says, drink water from your own cistern. Remember what's said in First Corinthians, you should have your own husband, your own wife. So here he's talking to a, a young man in an arid, dry climate. Imagine the luxury of having your own cistern. It says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? That's not how this is designed. Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. And then he's talking about the male sexual organ here let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And some of you maybe are prudes or whatever and you're like, no, 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 that's about a fountain. Okay, well, let me keep reading. <laughs> a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Oh, he's talking about hunting. Oh, really? <laughs> let her breasts fill you at all times. Her breasts, not all breasts. Her breasts. And then get this, and be intoxicated always, not with her body, in her love. That's the context. And in that context, incredible sensuality. You want more? Read the book of Song of Solomon. The whole thing is about a sexual relationship between a husband and wife in the marriage context. They invite you into their foreplay. They walk you through the whole process. I'll read you a little bit. In uh, Song of Solomon 4, in verse 1, it says this, Behold, this is the husband speaking to his wife, You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes, and he starts with her eyes, not her body. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. And then he goes on, he says some things that maybe wouldn't work in your relationship. (laughs) Verse five, he gets down, he talks about gazelles now and animals again, and he's talking about her breasts. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. That that graze among the lilies. See, God's got a plan for real sensuality in the marriage relationship. He wants you to enjoy it. This is made for, it's not, some people say that sex is just for procreation and you're like, well, you got three kids. You've done it at least three times. You know, you've relationship with some people. Sometimes the church acts like that. Here's the deal. It's for enjoyment too. But let me say pastorally, my concern for you is not to tell you a couple tips in a moment about how you can have better performance. I want you to have great intimacy and I realize that everybody here is coming from a different place. Some people have been abused and so when your spouse touches you, you think about that abuse. Some people have filled their minds with so much pornography, they bring that stuff into the bedroom. Some folks, they, they, you haven't had sex in years. This is attention. He wants it more. And so you're just assuming because I'm a man, I'm going to go, he, you just got to do it more, ladies. Did you see? And some of you are going to abuse this passage from 1 Corinthians where it says that your body doesn't belong to you and his body doesn't belong to him. And you're going to go, that's my body. That is a total misuse of this. You don't understand what the whole gospel context is of this passage. Here's what I want you to know this should shift a lot of our thinking. The gospel actually applies to your sex life. And that seems weird to some people because you're like, no, I just get saved by the gospel. No, understand this. Your marriage is supposed to put on display the Christ's love for the church. What greater place, husbands, for you apply what we talked about last week about being a loving leader, a sacrificial, a servant leader coming to the bedroom that wants what's best for the other person What better place wise for you to apply, talk about respecting your husbands than in a sexual relationship. What better place can you put on to spray volunteering and love than in your sexual relationship? And so we talk about wanting to have a relationship that looks so different, not just better, having marriages that are so different than the world's ever seen. What about in our sex lives? We'd actually flee sexual immorality and run to God's plan. And God's got an incredible plan of safety. Husbands, are you making your wives feel safe? Of security? Wives, you make your husbands feel secure and of sensuality. But with all the baggage we all have, how do we get there? How do you come to this place? You start thinking about what is the gospel? What would the gospel look like in a sexual relationship? You think about things that we read in Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And you think about the gospel. Let me ask you this. Men, are you pursuing your wives? Because Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And some of you have been married for more than a week, and now it's like the hunt is over. The pursuit is done. No, no, no. You keep pursuing. You keep going after What did, what did Solomon say to his bride? He started talking about not just rushing in and getting what you can get. He started, he's wooing her. He's coming after her. And what did, what did the father say to the son in Proverbs? May your breast satisfy you always. It was the same breasts. Always. You keep coming after her. You keep pursuing. What does that look like? Well, it looks like what we talked about last week. You studying your bride, knowing about your bride, knowing her needs, knowing her wants, knowing about her, and being fascinated with her, not just because of her bodily features, although it talks about bodily features in the Bible. But it it makes me think of a a movie that I've seen more times than I'd like to admit. And I bet you none of you are thinking of the movie that I'm thinking of right now in the context of sex. That's the movie Madagascar. It's a kid's movie. I've seen it a lot more times than I'd like to admit. And for those of you who don't know what the movie's like, what ends up happening in this movie is there's these animals that live in the zoo, and there's a fantasy by one of them that they would go and live in the wild, and so they break out and they go and live in the wild. Two of the characters are a giraffe and a hippo, and the giraffe is named Melman, and Melman has a huge crush on this hippo named Gloria. And they get to the wild finally, for you know, making the long story short here, and when they get to the wild, she meets some other hippos. And some of the other hippos are attractive. There's this one hippo, and he's really muscular, and he's really attractive, and he starts hitting on Gloria. Now, Melman's problems, we talked about last week, passive men. He's real passive, but he studied her, and he knows a lot about her. And there's this one scene in the movie where, where this guy's coming, and he's hitting on her, he's the hippo, but he's only got one line. Girl, you huge. <laughs> Girl, you so big. I don't recommend using that line either, men, by the way. <laughs> Apparently, it works for hippos. And so he keeps saying it to this gal, but then Melman comes in. The giraffe comes in at one point. And, and starts talking about, if I were you, he's jealous of this guy because she's fascinated with this guy. He says, if I were you, here's what I'd do. I'd butter her bread on both sides because he knows that she likes her bread like that. He says, and I would. And he starts talking about her needs. and starts talking about her desires. He starts talking about the way that she's made. And so, guys, are you fascinated with your wife because of her intelligence? Because of the way that she mothers? Because of the skills that she has? The gifts that God's given her? Or is it just Her breasts? Because what happens in the movie is that they go back and, and the giraffe leaves. He's still passive. He won't take the initiative. And so he, he misses out. And then the big guy goes, where were we at? And she goes, I'm huge. In other words, she's bored with that now. Guys, are you still pursuing your wife? Going after your wife? And what that means is you need to study her. And you need to talk to her. See, sex, a lot of sex is about, a lot more about talking than most people realize. Because what ultimately happens in the sexual relationship and you see it in Song of Solomon and you see it the way the things are written in the Proverbs, it's actually a celebration of the relationship you already have. We talked about this in week one when we talked about Genesis 2.24 and the two will become one and we talked about intimacy, but intimacy intimacy starts way before the bedroom. It starts with talking. So do you talk to one another? And so some of you, your greatest tension in the sexual relationship is how often it should happen. Have you ever talked to each other about how often it should happen? What is, what is his idea of how often it should happen? And I know she wants to do it way more than you do, guys, but still. Some of you have talked about it then, if you're laughing. But you've got to talk about it. What, what is ideal? And all that's part of the pursuit. All of that is part of the foreplay. And it, start, it doesn't start at a certain time of the day, it's just part of the relationship. Because what happens in a sexual intimacy when it's the way that it's designed to be is it actually culminates together when the actual intercourse with one another is a celebration of what you already have in the rest of your relationship. It's not just this physical act. And so you think about the gospel, and the gospel applies in pursuit. The gospel also applies in knowing each other's needs and care. So you think about what the gospel is, it's ultimately a demonstration of love, that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus here. That Jesus, as he looks out and he sees the people, he sees them like sheep without a shepherd. He's got compassion on them. He's moved in his bowels with compassion for the people because they're hurting and helpless. And so I gave the the guys a hard time on on the pursuit angle. So ladies, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit when I talk about care and knowing needs. You know his needs. And I'm not talking about frequency here because some of you think that's all the needs are is just frequency. But do you realize that most of the men sitting here today are emotional too? A lot of times we talk about men like it's just they just want more of it, and it doesn't matter how much there is, they just want more of it, and it's just it's that that I'll never be able to satisfy that, and so you just get frustrated in those things. But see, some of your men they don't even realize this that there are a lot of emotions tied up in the sexuality, and they're not even honest with themselves. They don't know themselves well enough to know this. But you, you can help them learn these things, and you help them realize these things as you work together in this relationship with one another. There, there's a book that I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read a part of here by Shanti Feldman, and you'll know Feldhan, and uh, the book's called For Women Only, so I'm not feeling guilty at all that I haven't read it. But uh, what she does is she surveys men, and she talks to men, and she talks in regard to sex. She says this, with regard to sex, for some men, it's sufficient to be sexually gratified whenever they want. For other men, it's also important to feel wanted and desired by their wife. How important is it to you, so then it's not just being willing, ladies, is what she's saying here, how important is it to you to also feel sexually wanted and desired by your wife? And she wrote, this topic, earned the highest degree of unanimity of any of the questions that she asked men. And get this stat, 97% of men said getting enough sex wasn't by itself enough. They wanted to feel wanted. One man she interviewed summed it up like this, everyone thinks women are more emotional than men. And everyone thinks that when it comes to sex, guys just want to do it. And women are more into the emotion and cuddling of it. So women think there are no emotions there. But there are. And when you say no, you're messing with all those emotions. It's not only a flat no that hurts. The survey showed that even if they were getting all the sex they wanted, three out of four men, 75%, would still feel empty if their wife wasn't both engaged and satisfied. Now let me tell you something, in order to even have a conversation like this requires incredible vulnerability. But it's about talking. So I'm not giving tips on performance here, I'm talking to you about your intimacy. It will impact how everything goes when you actually get together physically, Are you willing to be this vulnerable? And do you know how you can get this vulnerable? You've got to be in a situation where you can feel freedom. And that freedom can't happen when you don't know that you're committed to one another. That freedom can't happen when you don't know. When the opportunity comes and you actually take your clothes off and neither one of your bodies are actually perfect because none of us are, there's an opportunity for judgment or grace. What happens in that moment? Because what happens in that moment impacts the rest of the relationship, by the way. And if you want people to see, you want the world to then see, you don't want them to see your sex, but you want them to see this relationship, well, they're going to see an incredible intimacy between a couple, and what ultimately happens is you celebrate that in- intimacy when you come together. And then you can talk about that too. So by the way, did you like that? How did that go? You're concerned for each other's needs. Because did you see the passage, the, the third thing i give you about the gospel? You're not there to get something. Look at verse 3 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise the wife to her husband. The gospel is ultimately a message of giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We saw the picture we talked about a couple weeks ago. Jesus washing his disciples feet. an act of service. We talked about what it looks like, husbands, to love your wives with loving leadership. You're there to serve her and to do what's in her best interest. So you're there to give to her. So that means even when you get to the sexual encounter, let's apply that to sex. You're there for her. You, and I talked about a couple weeks ago, pray with your wife if you want more intimacy. Some guys came to me and said, hey, we're praying together more now. <laughs> they want more intimacy, but are you praying for her? So even in the sexual encounter, are you praying for her? Are you praying for her orgasm? Are you praying for her to are you praying? Are you just there for what you can get? Because otherwise what you've done is you've made, you've made sex a fulfillment of your lust. That's not God's plan. It's possible to sin sexually in marriage. But within the guardrails that God sets up, which would be one of pleasure, living out the gospel within sexuality, it's incredible. But you're there to give. Husband's there to give. Wife's there to give. Do you pray for each other? Do you talk to each other? Because ultimately this whole thing's about intimacy. And a lot of us didn't realize that. A lot of us didn't realize that gospel applies to this. And so we're like me with that vacuum cleaner. Oh, I've seen it. I know how it goes. I'm just going to use it. And, it's over. and there's no power in your sexual relationship. But God wants there to be an incredible intimacy there that ultimately is culminated and celebrated. And what you're doing together, it's a reminder over and over again of the covenant that you have with each other from Genesis 2.24 that you made on that wedding night. Two became one. And maybe it wasn't what you expected it to be on your wedding night. And then you continue to grow and you continue to learn. You continue to nurture one another and care for each other's needs and pursue each other and give to one another for years and years and years. And it becomes what God designed for it to be. So what's God's plan for your sexual life? If you're single, what's God's plan for you? If you're married, what's God's plan for you? Some of you haven't had sex in a long time, what's God's plan for you? Some of you need to talk, what's God's plan for your sexual relationship? Some of you are not sure if you're ever going to have sex again. what, What do we see here? Well, it's good to be single. You can be whole. Paul was single. Jesus was single. Jesus was a human, fully human. The picture of manhood, and he never had sex. See, sex is not a need, it's a desire for us. So be committed to him. What he says in, in sex, anything outside of these bounds, get away from it. Flee from it. Some of you need to repent. He can restore you. Some of you need to celebrate that you got a good sex, like when you are talking about stuff, and you can go apply this today. Some of you need to have some conversations You need to be praying together about, we've been having sex, but we haven't been doing what, what Scott was talking about. And we haven't been doing what, what we just read about in the passages of Scripture. What's God's plan for your sexual relationship? I hope you'll write it down. I hope you'll talk about it. We're going to break up into small groups this week, throughout the week. Folks are going to be meeting in their homes. If you're not in a small group, I encourage you to get into one. And I encourage you, small group leaders, one of the things we're doing in our small group is we're having the men meet separate from the women. Not because obviously the man and woman are together in the marriage relationship, but we want the freedom to be able to talk about some of these things. I encourage you to consider doing some of those same things. I'm going to pray for us. We're not going to have a song at the end today. But if you want to talk to somebody, you want to pray with somebody, we're going to have some prayer counselors that go to the back corners. They will be available to you. Some of you may be what we read about at the beginning of this passage. You haven't been changed. You haven't been transformed. That can happen today. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Thank you that you care about us. God, I pray that you would speak your truth into each one of our hearts. Some of us, that need to be vulnerable and talk about things that happened before we were ever married and we're in a marriage now and we don't know how that's going to be received. And God, I pray that you give great freedom because there's security and safety and commitment. I pray for some real talks for husbands and wives. I pray for those that are single that may think, well, what does this have to do with me? And all you can tell me is I can't. And God, I pray that you'd see that they would see that you love them. You're sparing folks pain and difficulty. You've got a good plan and they can trust you. And I pray they would. And I pray for folks that haven't trusted you as Savior, that aren't righteous because they haven't received your righteousness. It's not about being good enough that they want to I pray today that they would want to take on your righteousness and they would do that by coming to the cross, receiving your forgiveness, being washed, being cleansed, being justified, being made new, being set apart for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a great time in your small groups. Like I said, there's some folks in the back corner over here if you want to pray with somebody.